Hi, I'm Isabel Allen, Editor of Architecture Today. This is Habitat Matters, a six-part series produced in partnership with ACHO. The series explores the potential for biodiversity to enrich our environments and is part of ACHO's Habitat Matters campaign. You can find out more about that at habitat-matters.com. I'm talking to architect Deborah Saunt from DSDHA and landscape architect James Fox from FFLO. And we're here to talk about their collaboration on Exchange Park, which is a one and a half acre public park at the heart of Broadgate in the City of London. Um, Deborah, can you kick off by telling us what British land we're trying to achieve with this park? To begin with, the, the park was not an idea that was fully formed and it emerged over a series of years of us working with James. Um, from what were sort of, it was a competition, our first ever big competition for landscape improvements. So as architects, it was interesting, but what they wanted was to improve the public realm and they thought landscape architects were the people to employ. And they thought it was going to be a case of sort of gently massaging the edges. But then over the years, it became clear that the effect of working so much and improving public, the public realm made sort of coincided with the British land, really understanding that public realm and landscape is critical to the success of business, you know, their business of providing places for people to work in the city. So we've been making buildings for British land, sort of small buildings. And they said, oh, it's really interesting working with you. Come and show us what you do. And so we showed them lots of big buildings, small buildings across all these different sectors. And then we said, oh, we also do public realm. So a bit of that. And we said, oh, we do this funny thing. I remember putting the slides in thinking, oh, I wonder if they'll understand this. We also do research and sort of showed all our studies of public space that we've done with our students. And they said, oh, wait a minute. One of the people at this meeting said, hey, we've got a competition for public realm uh, to do the landscape at, at Broadgate. Would you like to enter? And we were like, well, why not? And we, we went in there and basically told them the truth that it's not the sort of place where creatives would be seen or anybody who was trying to sort of connect with their community or feel the culture of the area. It was very efficient, very beautifully designed, but it was kind of mindset from when, you know, obviously when it was designed, which was when places to work were places to work. And that was it, sort of monoculture of the city. So I suppose we came in at a moment when British land wanted a new vision. And that's when we started developing this idea of improvements to the whole estate. And then that's when we called James because we realised that landscape and the actual plant specification and the conversation with the planting meant that we needed James's amazing horticultural expertise. The sequence of events was that um, DSDHA and Deborah and David and Tom came up with a vision and the vision was that um, the different spaces in, in Broadgate needed a kind of landscape identity and there needed to be different identities for the different spaces somehow to help you orientate yourself because at the moment well when we started it's just this rather stony surface Broadgate because it's all built over the railway you know there's hardly any soil there it's only one place in Broadgate um, with any soil that's Finsbury Avenue Square but the rest is all just a surface over the top of the railway line so it's a very harsh um landscape and DSDHA's vision was that there would be these very strong distinctive landscape types defining a kind of quality 
um, for each of the individual spaces within Broadgate, so Broadgate Circle, Finsbury Avenue Square, um, Broadgate Plaza and so on. Um, and they actually, they, they came up with these very beautiful drawings showing these really powerful, quite extreme type of landscapes, so tropical or like a desert or, and uh, then they wondered, how do we do this? <laughs> and they kindly asked me to help. And so I did. Yeah. I'm curious about the economics of it. Um, I was talking this morning to Peabody um, and they've just produced a living in the landscape report. I don't know if you've seen that, but they've, they've mm. done sort of research into um, the return on investment for money spent on green infrastructure and they come up with some incredibly impressive figures, but I guess because they're Peabody and because of the demographic of Thamesmead, it's all couched in terms of savings to the NHS over the long term. So it's healthier lifestyles, it's encouraging exercise, it's school attendance. But I'm guessing if it's British land and it's Broadgate, there's a much more direct, how quickly can you rent your office space and what can you charge for it? Can you kind of tell me a bit about how you come up with those figures that justify the investment in the kind of work you're doing? I think the revelation that everybody has worked out in the last 20 years is that we don't just make buildings and we don't just make landscapes, we make pieces of city. And as James said, originally it was very much conceived as this quite hard, macho, if I dare say it, as one of the few women who's had a chance to design there, a quite a strong-willed kind of environment. And I think everybody's just worked out that if you want to create a place where, where the future of work has changed, People don't want to just be with bankers and bankers. They want to be surrounded by creativity. All of the people who are employing them understand that creativity and well-being is vital. And this whole mode of working has changed with technology, that we don't sit in one place anymore. We can move around and quite a lot of us like working outside or in a coffee shop. So this sort of avalanche of shift, shifting opinion has, has taken sort of, oh, I said snowball is better than avalanche, a snowball of, 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 of sort of culture shift has happened, but people have finally twigged that if you're making a piece of city, it's absolutely paramount that you understand the importance of landscape and public realm. So for them, it was a no-brainer. It really has been the modest additions that James and DSCHA made to um, Broadgate Circle, to Finsbury Avenue Square and up at Broadgate Plaza, they were so cheap and the impact was immediate and palpable that people were spending longer in Broadgate. The diversity of people coming in was, was greater. And then we also discovered that it was a seven days a week environment when previously it had been Monday to Friday. I mean, we haven't yet mentioned our original client and he was actually, he's moved on from British land now, he's called Bernard Hirscher. And um, he was actually really fundamental to the success of the project, both insofar as quite open minded and insofar as he's extremely positive about what the landscape could do at Broadgate. And I asked him this same question, actually, about, well, how are we going to pay for it? Or when we came to Exchange Park, which really is an expensive project. And he said, well, the thing is, well, that's very hard to quantify well-being which is what people have to do in a public park you know there's lots of studies now about well how do you quantify the health benefits of green space or how do you quantify well-being 
so that Broadgate's a little bit easier. If we can put a penny on everyone's rent, it's going to pay this back in no time. This is Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACHO, a podcast series that looks at the challenges involved in putting biodiversity and green infrastructure at the heart of our built environment. There's a very small amount of uplift um, that people appreciate more being there. They're happy to pay just a little bit more every single person with a bit of office space then you know pays back really really quick that was his answer to that question well how amazing to have that sort of budget to play with and that attitude and um, I wanted to ask you James about the kind of behaviors and the policing of behaviors that happen when you introduce an environment where as Deborah says you know it's less corporate people feel more relaxed you want them to feel relaxed there's a whole kind of Continuum isn't there from sitting on grass and picking daisies and pinning poems on trees to actually digging things up and climbing trees and doing things that are dangerous. Mm. <laughs> and I don't know how you, you hit that balance between wanting people to kind of own the landscape and not feel that it's something just to be looked at and walked through, but actually still preserving it. I think a lot of it is about atmosphere. Um, I think that places have a kind of atmosphere that tells you what you may or may not be able to do in them and people are quite sensitive to that actually um but i also think that as a designer you can never quite predict and uh, i'll give you an example it's not at broadgate but um as deborah said i used to work for todd longstaff gowan and todd and me um we did the new gardens around kensington palace and it's all earthworks and slopes and stuff and i remember um being at a meeting saying uh, people ask me, well, are people going to be a bit naughty on these slopes and earthworks? And I remember being at the meeting saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry. It's outside the palace. It's going to look so perfect. No one's even going to walk on the grass. And they said, but maybe just a little bit of roly poly on the slopes. No, I said, it's just it's it's a palatial landscape. No one will do that. And I remember the first day. Um, it opened. I sat on the slope. There were people everywhere. And recently <laughs> I took my kids there. They spent a full hour doing roly poly down the slope. So the answer is you can try to predict what people will do. You can never quite succeed. But even when you don't, you may set up some very nice roly poly scenarios that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Oh, I, I quite like the idea of our city's finest in their suits doing roly polies at lunchtime, and going back to nice work slightly thing. creased and uh, a bit of straw behind an ear. But yeah. um, it, it, it kind of brings us on to the issue of, of custodianship and, and policing and management and security and all those things. And um, Deborah, I know you pushed quite early on for the introduction of a sort of long-term management regime that actually enshrined the biodiversity principles. Were you pushing it an open door? Was that a controversial thing to ask for? Well, I think what we've really been developing has, is this idea that you have to look at space over time. It's not just about you produce a landscape. I mean, everybody knows a garden needs tending. So I think we wanted to sort of go that extra step and actually think about how we could encourage that sense of connection with the site. And um, as part of the research for the project, I went at, in midwinter at Bernard's request 
uh, to New York to go and see how all these stellar public spaces, such as Paley Park and the High Line and many others, performed in extreme weather. When I went to New York, I found there were lots of gardeners just visible in the spaces and they were very friendly and open to you talking to them. And so they would tell you about the history of the place, what the maintenance regime was, and it just seemed such a welcoming difference compared to most British parks. Don't you think, James? You just don't get any more. You used to when we were little, this idea of the park keeper, but it's, it now park spaces are kind of run by what they call facilities management, aren't they? And you're, we're really sort of aware that we didn't want those sort of uniformed kind of busybodies sort of managing the space. We wanted people in the space who understood what it really stood for in terms of its biodiversity and the impact of the green space, but also who could work with the community uh, and sort of be this um, conduit so you could have local schools coming to Exchange Park, finding out about what is it like, as James says, to build a park on top of a railway station. I, I got out of Liverpool Street Station platform nine yesterday and I looked up and you can see a huge number of trees now sort of pushing through the arches of, of the railway station sort of um, tunnel and you can sense this park in a way that you couldn't before hmm. so I think we really want to make sure that people come and they're curious that they can find out more because it is technically such a demanding location I think there's two sides to it. There's a kind of there's the social aspect and the idea of a human interface between a place and the, and the people who use it and pass through it. And then there's the horticultural aspect. And both are equally important to me. I'd spend a lot of time working with um, famous garden designers and I even design gardens myself occasionally. And I've become aware that um, actually the gardener who looks after your garden is within a year more important as in herbaceous planting scheme, which means plants, uh, which means flowers and so on. Within a year, the gardener is more important than the designer. Within three years, you can forget about what the designer did. It's a total irrelevance. The success of that scheme will only be the gardener. So whilst a lot of sort of importance is placed on the designer, um, actually long term by far the most important person is the gardener and they need a kind of a freedom to care about what they do and also adjust it as it goes along because a little known fact but most perennial plants flowers grasses they last for maybe three to five years and then they die or they move on or they shift somewhere else in the bed or they become so big you have to pull them out so the nature of the thing is that the scheme as such doesn't really exist very shortly after it's been planted and everything from that point onwards is to do with the way the gardener chooses to manage it so maybe they split a plant they've noticed that a plant is doing well, well in another location they put some more of it over there and before you know it uh, you know the, the designer is is forgotten there's a construction industry or at least the design side of it it's all set up to give the clients the illusion of control and with professionals, we pretend we know I put that plant there, it will do well, or that won't work, whatever. But actually, the whole thing is a big system of prob probability, maybe more, maybe less, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. And you put the right person in charge of that system, 
and it's a living thing that evolves and changes and adapts to its place and it succeeds but if you don't if you treat it as though it's static it it just dies you're you know? doomed yeah what james is also uh, alerting one to is the fact that we looked at these different environments that were in broad gates so you had a place that was incredibly hot next to uh, make did a stainless steel clad building and that that's really you know really sort of enclosing uh, the circle and it's it's almost like the mediterranean and that was what triggered our thoughts that we should treat these environments as biomes so it's about a kind of ecosystem rather than it being about this is where you get espalier trees <laughs> this is where you get a sort you know sort of architectural plant you're listening to habitat matters produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as part of their Habitat Matters campaign. Find out more at habitat-matters.com. What's so interesting hearing you talk, James, is it makes you realise that those spaces can evolve over time because it is going to get hotter and wetter in London and the whole of the world. And having uh, this idea of this kind of evolutionary space is, is something that I think underscored what we were looking at, wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't about the fixed kind of step piece where you know if you go to Paris you can't change a garden in Paris because you know they're they're really they're all about the set piece aren't they they don't have that kind of looseness but I mean the one thing I didn't manage to talk to you just earlier um Isabel was just to say the sort of concept of um the concept of the park is that you're suspended above a railway station but you're also suspended in time because it is a you know quite a frenetic and intense urban environment and we really wanted to create this place where you felt lifted up and almost like in a hammock so the whole landscape is a kind of hammock but it's made of heavy stuff and it's planted and it's brilliant i i went to site just a couple of weeks ago and you you stand within it and the sun is shining and it's incredibly curvy it's so not the sharp spaces and angles of what was there before mm. you really feel embraced and enveloped in it it's incredible you must come isabel it's it really does hold that sort of idea of being suspended in time and out of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, yeah, I worked. Quite... I worked for a short while in um, Finsbury Square, and oh, wow. um, I did find it quite traumatic. I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, uh, one thing I always got lost. Always got lost. I just couldn't mm-hmm. ever find anything. I never quite. I mean, even now, I don't. I could quite say which corner of the square I was in on a map. It's the most disorientating environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that sort of, you know, there the just wasn't that corner at lunchtime. You know, you've just got to step out and go somewhere. And partly it was because of the, the geometry. You know, you were either part, part of that sort of perfect circle, that sort of panopticon, or you were in a square. And, you know, you never felt like there was a, a loose edge. There was never a kind of cafe table that was around a corner. And you, you I found it incredible, even though it's, you know, everything's mega scale, but it manages to be both big and claustrophobic at the same time, which is... Um, <laughs> so yeah I'd be very very interested to come back um on another note I wanted to ask you a little bit about wildlife um because unless it's changed radically um I can't think that you can make a really joined up green infrastructure I mean however dense and lovely your landscape is you're sort of in an island aren't you there yeah I mean interestingly that I mean there's a lot of green roofs going in um in Broadgate at the moment, um, all of the new buildings are covered in roof terraces. 
And some of the, the more recent ones have also, um, you know, like the Mate building has got a lot of green roofs on it, but all of the new ones have got roof terraces heavily planted. So actually they are beginning to build up a kind of network of um, green spaces across that site. Um, and as they carry on knocking down the old buildings and building new ones with green roofs on them, or retrofitting as they are in some cases, you know, they will actually end up with, in plan, quite a surprisingly green space. In terms of ecology, it's actually more complicated because a lot of insects don't like to go from the lower level to the high level like that. You know, a bee really doesn't want to go up 20 storeys. And they found out that green roofs, for this reason, green roofs don't contribute as much as people originally hoped to the ecosystem in cities. And there's a lot of insects don't like it up there anyway because it's too windy. Mm. Um, that's really interesting isn't it because obviously the ideal is sort of beehives on every rooftop you know and you imagine sort of Barbara from the good life's just going to be kind of up there with chimney sweep (laughs) yeah sort of Mary Poppins idea of how we move forward but um I also I was always fascinated by this idea of kind of good and bad wildlife because you know in a place like Broadgate how do you make somewhere that's attractive to birds but somehow say we don't want more pigeons or you know how is it not heaven for rats if it's heaven for squirrels or you know what can you fine-tune environments that much the, the answer is not all that much you can put a bird box that a pigeon can't get into and that's that's fine um but uh, rats there's nothing you can do that a rat you know, won't like apart from some rat poison or a rat trap. I mean, nature is very unpredictable. I I recently went to look at the um, the the muff um, scheme in Barking, I think, which completed about ten years ago with those big uh, lanterns hanging over a public space. Mm. Those lanterns are now the most fantastic pigeon roost. There's thousands Ooh. of pigeons in there. You've never seen so many pigeons sort of like yeah, the serious pigeon problem they've created and nature is so unpredictable like that so I remember looking at that scheme and thinking it was really great I mean I thought it was a brilliant piece of landscape but in reality when you go there all you think is my goodness this is a pigeon problem then do we actually need to slightly change our attitude and get get over our phobias about rats and pigeons and pristine spaces well, that's interesting because, and that was one of our observations about um, Broadgate when we went there, it must be six or seven years ago, we said it was too clean. It, uh, they had just spent a lot of money, in fact, resurfacing the whole of the circle with an incredibly light limestone in an area where lots of people drink and they were, and it, it boomed up the lights, so it made it very pretty, but it actually made it much hotter. Uh, but it also made it incredibly obvious that it was dirty. And I think that's that's something that when we worked on Tottenham Court Road together with, with James, we, we were keen to not do that thing of putting down lots of kind of white, bright stone that can't survive. That said, we do have quite light stone on uh, exchange part where necessary, but we, we really made, we went and visited so many different sites. It's a particular French stone, and we know it's incredibly robust. Uh, so th- th- we don't want them having to use lots of bleach and cleaning agents on it. Um, so we're, we're great. We're great defenders of um, letting things grow 
grow old gracefully. I mean, it's also the worry, isn't it? The people go to Singapore as well, going, oh, isn't it fantastic? It's all so green and so lush. They have a law in Singapore that you have to clean your building every three years, otherwise you get fined. And what's your dream, James, if you go back? I mean, I kind of love this idea that you're almost consciously letting go of it. But if you go back in 10 years' time, what do you hope you'll see? If it's a big, tangly, overgrown, leafy paradise? I, I would like it to be very lush. I'd like to see people lying about. I mean, this is like a garden, this scheme. You know, it's not a square. It, it, it's a bit too small to really be a park. Um, and it's got a lot going on in it, like a garden. And I think that when I do a London garden, um, I'm always looking to create a feeling of escape. Like you go there and you, like Deborah said, you're out of time. Um, and even for me, maybe out of place. There's a dislocation. So what I would like to see is people lounging about as though they didn't work at all and didn't wear suits all the time. That's my own kind of uh, uh, prejudice. And um, were just being themselves for an hour with the breeze, with the plants, with the smells, feeling in another place. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. Oh, what a gift if you can give them that. James Fox, Deborah Sorn, thank you very much for joining me today. You've been listening to Habitat Matters, brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as a part of a whole series of webinars and podcasts about biodiversity in the built environment. To find out more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Steve McIntyre from Living Wall Specialist ANS Global and Ashley Welsh, an ecologist at ACOM, about biodiversity net gain. Mm-hmm.